Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today, we are joined by Sudan Macchio, my law partner at McCullough Sudan. Sudan has been practicing corporate law for about 25 years and can sing volare in three different languages. Sudan, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So this is maybe a podcast first, but for today's show, for those of you who are not uh, familiar with a Venezuelan accent, we're actually going to have subtitles for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> not funny. <laughs> it, it was funny to me. So um, uh, part of the reason that we wanted to have you on the, uh, the show is uh, we went to lunch the other day, meeting with a prospective client, and um, I asked you sort of innocuously, I said, what do you think about this new Jack Ryan series on Amazon? And you kind of rolled your eyes and then you un- unleashed your, you know, your thoughts on uh, this Jack Ryan series that takes place in Venezuela. Tell us a little bit about your thoughts on this, uh, this new program from Amazon. Well, um, you know, Venezuela is a sensitive topic for, for, for anybody who, who cares about the situation. If you are, you're Venezuelan, if you have a Venezuelan relative, friend, or if you simply care for, for this type of tragedies that go around uh, sometimes around the world. So, and, and I guess the frustration is really when, when you see Venezuela tied to a brand TV name, you're, I guess your heart is expecting a sort of a documentary that, that creates awareness and, and make sure uh, the, the situation, the terrible situation is not forgotten. So with the Jack Ryan, and then, and then in, in, on top of that, I guess I've been a fan of Tom Clancy stories for forever. So, so looking at the series, and, and yes, I know it's fiction. Yes, I, I know this is entertainment. But, but nonetheless, it was, it was a little, again, given the Venezuelan heart, uh, it's a little, uh, it's, it's really not Venezuela. It's a, it's a fictional place called Venezuela with the same flag and colors. But the situation is, is just the background for a, I don't know, low budget 007 story that is very entertaining. For the record, I'm still watching it. I still enjoy the action and, and the acting and everything is, is entertaining to me. But, but for example, imagine you are, you are an American and there is a series about uh, the, a scene that's supposed to happen in the Oval Office. But then the picture of the Oval Office is some other building. Or the picture of the White House for introducing is, introduction is, is some other building in any other place. So that's what happened with Jack Ryan. They have, okay, this is a scene that happens in the presidential palace called Miraflores Palace. And then the picture is some other place, God knows where, looks Bogota. And yes, I know there's no way of filming uh, a series in, in, the, in the actual nowadays Venezuelan when the villain of the, of, the, of the series is the Venezuelan president. I get that. But uh, anyway, it's, it's just the, the, the fiction and the reality uh, is painful for, for, for Venezuelan sensitivities. Uh, it looks, if you ask me what it looks like, and maybe, maybe I'm jumping ahead, it looks like current affairs in Bolivia, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, the main reason is, is another fictional character in the series is because the bad guy with the power is concerned about uh, his behind in the election polls. 
It's in Venezuela. Election polls are a fiction. So that's my that's my rant. Um, we can go over more details if you leave me. I'll take the entire two hours. Well, I guess in general terms, tell us tell us what they what they got right, if anything. The accents. They, <laughs> they got the accents. The, the the Spanish you see is actual Venezuelan slang. Uh, the actors are there are the main characters uh, are Venezuelan actors actually. So the you know the Spanish dialect is is on is spot on. That's pretty much it. Uh, so yeah, I was just gonna say I've watched a bit of the show the way that I normally watch TV, which is that my wife is watching it and I'm sitting next to her on the bed and occasionally I you know I'll look over and I'll I'll see a little bit of what's going on. So. I can't say that I have in-depth binged this uh, Jack Ryan show. I'm broadly familiar with the situation in Venezuela, uh, which has kind of been in a spiral for a while, I might say. But p- perhaps that might be a good place to start is let's talk about the reality of Venezuela. And then if we wanted to try and tie it back into like what actually happens in the plot with some spoilers or whatever, we could do that, <laughs> maybe. But so, I mean, maybe do that. I know, I don't know how far back we want to go. Uh, most people, I think, probably their knowledge of Venezuela is, well, there, there used to be this guy, Hugo Chavez, who was the president, and then uh, he died and one of his lieutenants or something took over and then uh, things continued to, to digress from there. But, but you know, what's the kind of broad scope of how we got to where we are with with Venezuela. I'll try to be I'll try to be uh, brief, although no promises. Yeah, right, right. So Venezuela after World War II, there was a virus going around the world really of totalitarian socialism and communism. That virus somehow uh, in the Americas was contained to Cuba for for Cold War dynamics, Cuba got away with keeping uh, a group of uh, Marxist governmental, I want to say thugs, but I, I have stronger words for that. Uh, <laughs> a, you know, a, a, a society oppressed by communist ruling, a communist ruling party. Cuba has been trying to export that or con- take that system and export it into the region. They tried in Venezuela in the 60s. They, were, they got defeated uh, in, in guerrilla warfare. That they were, There was a process that was finished in the early 70s, with pacified finish uh, in the early 70s. Uh, so the virus in Venezuela was dormant. That virus was very active in Colombia. That's why the Tom Clancy movies before us were had Colombia's background, you know, clear and present danger type of type of action movies. So, so what happened in Venezuela is that dormant virus that has been dormant for the longest time due to uh, crisis, uh, crash of oil prices, uh, a long list of complicated political events, the, the virus uh, or the dormant problem woke up in, the monster was woken up in the early 90s. Early 90s, Hugo Chavez became known because he attempted a coup d'etat against against a democratically elected leader uh, at the time. At the time, Venezuela was the oldest democracy in Latin America. Uh, actually, it was the oldest democracy in the Spanish-speaking world, older than Spain itself. Spain, 
In Spain, their last dictator died in 1974, Francisco Franco. Our, democracies, uh, our democracy was founded in 1958. And I use the word founded on purpose. Venezuela has, this may be true for Latin America, but Venezuela specifically has always been uh, under military ruling. Venezuela has always had a military in the head of state. Since, since Venezuela exists. Venezuela exist, started existing as an independent country in 19, 1830. So the first time from 1830 that there was a peaceful transition of, of power in Venezuelan history was 1961. So from 1830 till 1961, the true change in power was preceded by a fight. Therefore, the, the, normally the head of the the, the, the the victor of this fight was a military that said, okay, I created a revolution because you guys were abusing us, and now, now I'm the group that is going to abuse you until, until the next revolution comes. That was finally stopped in 1958. Uh, there was a, a new constitution drafted, and in 1961, the new constitution, taking into account that military role in ruling the country specifically prohibited military to have political opinions. So the military, like in a normal Western democracy, like in a true republic, military uh, and politics were separated. If, if you are a general and you're commanding troops, you cannot have a political opinion, your services to the republic. Uh, so that worked well for us until Chavez came into power. When Chavez took power, democratically elected, he, the first thing he started doing was changing the constitution, calling a constitutional assembly, and that process removed that security and that safety of prohibiting the military to have a political opinion. If I could just stop to clarify one thing, because you, you mentioned Chavez had tried to take power in a military coup in the early 90s and that that failed right and then correct later i guess he he won like he ran for president or whatever and and won correct i would think that trying to overthrow the government you know they wouldn't let you run again or maybe you would be off in prison somewhere but that's not necessarily that i guess the way it went um okay so you're forcing me to the longest version we need to digress a little bit Uh, And and that's a really good question. In a nutshell, Chavez Chavez crime was very popular. People took him as a savior of the rich versus the poor. Uh, The radical Marxist left that has been dormant, that that we discussed before from Cuba, was super excited to have Chavez. Uh, they, They... I don't know if there's a true connection that the Cubans were was breeding were breeding Chavez from an infancy. There are some people say that Chavez joined when Chavez joined the military uh, early on. He was already being groomed by the Communist Party to someday take power. I do not believe they are that wise long term. I think they saw the opportunity. Uh, radical leftists and leftists in general saw the opportunity and and saw Chavez as a savior. Uh, As a parenthesis, at the time, Latin America and Venezuela especially was going through free market reforms. 
There was a, there's a big wave of privatizing state enterprises. We in Venezuela were opening the oil industry to foreign investments. We had like the ExxonMobils, the ConocoPhillips, the Chevrons of the world coming back after being kicked out in 1975, uh, coming back and investing in, 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 in helping us share risk and, and invest and, and bring technology to a country that we desperately needed. So when Chavez rise, they were like, aha, we told you guys, capitalism is evil. These free market reforms are causing the military to revolt. So Chavez was prompted a, a way of, and, and a lot of people were back into that, a lot of highly educated people, a lot of media. Uh, the, main, the main TV stations were, and the main media were highly supportive of what Chavez did. Yes, it was a crime. Yes, it is illegal. Yes, he's in jail, but now he was a hero. He, he became a, a Robin Hood sort of type of speech, intellectuals, uh, media, they were all super happy. So because of that political wave, one political candidate rode in the wave of saying, whoa, 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 Chavez is right. We need to hear, we need to change this free market economy that you guys, you educated people, you know, the Chicago boys uh, are trying to implement. So Chavez is now a hero. So this political candidate, there was an old uh, one of the founders of our democracy called Rafael Caldera, he pardoned Chavez. After he basically, he got elected, riding the wave of that res resentment and discontent with the current the, the economy at the time, he pardoned Chavez and, and that pardon came before Chavez was sentenced. With a sentence, he, wouldn't be, he would not be able to run for president. So... So in a nutshell, the political climate at the time prevailed over what justice and, and proper rule of law should have dictated, answering your question. I don't know. If After that, Chavez was invincible, high, highly charismatic. Uh, he's a preacher. He was a preacher. Um, you started listening to the guy, and for a moment, you started liking him until you said, whoa, 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 what am I liking? So, but the whoa, 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 you needed to understand that he was proposing uh, um, authoritarian socialism, communism. He was basically saying, I am going to give away with the free market and the free market status that we have right now, and I'm going to lead a worldwide revolution. The first thing he did after coming out of jail, after that pardon was flying to Cuba, uh, after he got elected, the first, one of his first guests of honor was Fidel Castro. So, and then he changed the constitution, uh, removed the prohibition for the armed forces to participate in politics. So fast forward today, now the most important key political party in Venezuela is the armed forces. You have the guys with guns uh, having all the power, concentrated, it's a military regime. For the longest time, they try to keep the appearance of democracy, they don't care anymore. Uh, when Chavez passed away, he instructed his people to vote for Nicolás Maduro, which is the current dictator. Let's not call it a president. Um, and, uh, and, and then the elections, uh, the, then we had elections where an opposition candidate ran. Uh, some people say the opposition candidate, candidate won by a close margin, uh, but the, elect, the, the regime didn't allow him it never recognized the victory. There was, without an independence judiciary, you have no way of proving that. 
Um, so that 2013, uh, in 2013, this this Chavez, you know, uh, successor uh, continued uh, continue the government. What happens with you know Soviet Union 1989? If you control the economy, if you impose a totalitarian communism, you run out of food, services, infrastructure, which is what's happening right now. So we have a humanitarian crisis, uh, worst humanitarian crisis in the history of Latin America for sure. Four million people have left the country walking, like literally walking. We have nothing here to eat. We don't have electricity. We're better off walking to the border. Uh, and that's the current situation. You have you have a you, you have a you have a military government that is not even recognized by the international community, uh, a de facto government, uh, a de facto regime that will be in power, uh, God knows for how long. Uh, you could say that's non-sustainable, but uh, there they are, same as the same as the Cubans. There's also something I gather. Uh, there were legislative elections that the opposition won, and the government, uh, the, the president said basically, well, we're just going to create a, a, a new, different legislature or something like that. Yeah, that is a really good question. In, in 2015, there was elections for, for the parliament, for the legislature. They, they call it assembly, national assembly. So those elections, the opposition has always, before that, there was a, a, the opposition strategy was we don't recognize, we're not going to participate and give legitimacy to an authoritarian regime that is trying to keep a facade of democracy. So that strategy changed in 2015 and they said, well, people are so unhappy with what, what is going on that we, had, we now have the political capital to, get, to uh, gain control of the legislature. They were right. They did. They 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 got control of the legislature. Uh, but you know, paraphrasing Adolf Hitler, when when his uh, lieutenants were concerned about the Pope not approving what he was doing, how many Panzer division does the Pope control? Here was the same issue: how many how many tanks and how many troops the National Assembly controls? So they just they just started undermining their the factual power of the legislature. Uh, although the legislature continued continued to exist and to function until they created a parallel legislature with a fraudulent call for a constitutional assembly, creating a separate constitutional assembly that would work, in essence, as a parallel legislature that was complacent to the government. So this legislature and the legal argument uh, for uh, having President Guaido, which is the president of the last legitimately elected National Assembly in the country, the argument was Maduro's uh, term that started in 2013, expired in 2018. Maduro did a, a clearly fraudulent election to get reelected without international observing, not even, not even observing basic forms. So the international community didn't recognize those elections. Therefore, under the Venezuelan constitution, if the president is absent, the next in line is the head of the National Assembly. So the argument is the legitimate president right now uh, under Venezuelan law of the country is Juan Guaido, which is the head of the National Assembly. Those, that's the duality, the, percep the, the perception of duality we have, because you, you have a de facto regime where Maduro still controls the territory. Uh, but internationally, he's not recognized by most 
Western countries. I don't know, 50, 56, last time I checked. Uh, it's not recognized as president, but then, you know, the usual suspects, North Korea, Cuba, Russia, China, uh, and the territories controlled by Hezbollah and Hamas, I guess, recognize him uh, as president. So that's what we have right now. So it seemed like a few months ago, there was sort of hope, maybe some momentum, that it looked like there might have been an opportunity for, I don't know if you want to call it regime change, but there was a hope for something that Maduro might be driven from power. Um, and that all seems to have changed. And I think there was even a, a coup, coup attempt. Talk a little bit about that. Has that moment passed? Is there still any opportunity for uh, change in, in Venezuela? So, yes, the, this argument I, I just described uh, was developed uh, and implemented by the opposition leaders on January 23rd, 2019. So basically on January 23rd, we had um, the president of a national assembly, the National Assembly declaring that Maduro was absent uh, or was not legitimately the president anymore because the elections were fraudulent. Then then declaring that with that situation and with that declaration, then Juan Guaido uh, was sworn as, as president. He was in a, in a public rally. Uh, he said Juan Guaido is a young, polit very energetic, very charismatic politician. So in a public rally, uh, resembling the original political rallies that... Uh, started the revolution of independence against Spain. <clears throat> Resembling that, that basic uh, city organization we, we call Cabildos. So with that in mind, he basically sworn uh, in front of a crowd that was sworn as, as the new president. That, that was January 23rd, uh, 2019. Uh, a lot of the, of the media pretending to be or, or struggling to be independent in a very polarizing situation. That is the reason why he, what they were calling him self-proclaimed, because um, he, he technically self-proclaimed, but uh, in essence, the legitimacy came for the absence of the fraud of Maduro. So, so that was, that created a snowball of hope. Um, okay, well, we have a different president, uh, at least formally. Uh, so we all, so, so the forces uh, that, that, that wish uh, or they are hoping for a change in Venezuela, started embracing that new reality. The U.S. recognized him immediately, practically, like next day. Colombia recognized him immediately. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, and, and so there was a, a big, uh, a big uh, different forces and different organizations started putting together plans. Like, okay, what happened if we have a, if, if, if there's a change and we need new rules for recovering the oil industry? What do we do to recover the oil industry? What do we do? What do we need to recover infrastructure, etc.? So there was a lot of uh, high-level people thinking the smart uh, measures that that would be necessary for this process, and then this created work and expectations and meetings and and, and social media and Twitter and Facebook, etc. So all that reached a climax uh, on April. Uh, 2019, this last April, uh, April 30th, there were there were troops movements, and that apparently there was some um, work or some 
what, what, the, what the press says, and, and then again, then, you know, the first victim of any war is the truth. So God knows what really happened, but what appears to have happened is there were factions of the military that had conversations with the opposition and with the State Department of the U.S. or, or the intelligence community or whomever is coordinating that from the U.S. side to say, we will, we will recognize Guaido as the president, we will um, detain Maduro and restore democracy. And then we start the process. So that morning, <clears throat> we all, uh, at 5 a.m., we all woke up, everybody, every, every Venezuelan was calling every other Venezuelan at 5 a.m., saying, you know, Guaido is in a military garrison in Caracas, which is an airbase called uh, La Base Miranda, uh, which is basically an airbase in, in the heart of Caracas. And, and we were like, oh, my God, we did it. <clears throat> Turn out that didn't happen. Turn out, yes, he, he was outside the base, but the military, they were either just playing with the opposition to, to, to see who in the military would not be loyal or they changed their mind, uh, but the military never really, really revolted. So that caused that one of the leaders, that political leaders that was with, that was with Juan Guaido, which is his mentor, uh, he ended up uh, running to the Spanish embassy um, for asylum. Uh, and then the head of the intelligence services of the Venezuelan government also ended up here in the U.S. under us uh, asking for asylum. So it was a bit fiasco, in other words. The expectation of, of controlling the, the actual power and the territory were suddenly not there anymore. Uh, it was like a big, big uh, uh, hope uh, bubble burst. And that's what happened. That was that was, the, that was sort of a climax of that story. After that, we realized, I, I personally realized, that the problem is a military problem. If, if you don't control the military, if the military, there, if there is no wish in the military for a political change uh, in the country, in the territory of the country, or if the military doesn't, doesn't decide to recognize the legally legitimate government, things are not going to change. Uh, when is that going to happen? I have no idea. I wish it'll happen tonight. Maybe it happened two hours ago. We just haven't heard it. Maybe it will happen in 30 years. I, it's impossible to know now. Uh, the current situation is that, you know, it's a military-backed government supporting, you know, the axis of evil. Um, Cuba, North Korea, Russia and China have strong interest. Uh, side note, there is uh, Mike Pompeo went on the record saying that, that Maduro was uh, ready to leave the country and the Russians didn't let him or either didn't let him or persuade him to stay. Uh, that's what that Pompeo said. Uh, may or may not be true. I don't know, but that was the, that was the official version we, we've heard in the, in, in the fiasco that happened in, in April. So that's, that's where we are now. Talk a little bit more about the humanitarian situation, because if I'm not mistaken, I think over the summer uh, there were international shipments that were being brought into Venezuela, but the, the Venezuelan military was actually stopping uh, those shipments. Is that still happening now? What, what's happening now is like literally the ironically and everything in Venezuela is so Everything is backwards. So the humanitarian aid is being smuggled into the country. So you use the smuggling routes for 
for getting help medicines to, to private civil organizations. What happened, what you're referring to, I think, and I don't have the, the a precise date, one of the efforts uh, that was made looking for looking for pro- pro- provoking a break in the in the Venezuelan regime, there was a big um, a big event in the border with with Colombia, where they, they there was a humanitarian sort of concert, and and prominent stars, Latin American and international artists came and gave a free concert. Uh, for people to donate, and then the humanitarian trucks, when they were attempting to cross the border into Venezuela, were burned down. So, so, so the big picture and the image was, you know, a truck full of humanitarian aid being burned down by people or, or by officers. There was a sort of struggle of people trying to get into and and, and officers trying to prevent. Uh, these unauthorized uh, trucks entering the country with humanitarian aid. And at the end, that didn't work either. So there was no military break. The humanitarian aid was not able to reach the country. So as a practical matter right now, humanitarian aid is being smuggled to a smuggling route. So, so you know, there, there, are, there are a lot of uh, good-hearted people working on that and helping. There are also a lot of organizations and humanitarian aid being provided to refugees that are crossing the borders. Um, so that is that is that front. That is a front. Uh, I can I can send you guys the information of the of the organizations that, that I know that are good people, uh, capable and honest, working and and providing help in that regard. And that's all we can do now. <clears throat> So, so yes, that is going on, and we'll we'll go on for as long as necessary, and as long as we have the resources and the will to help Venezuelans in need. All right, so let's let's turn now to our neighbor to the south, Mexico. You and I were actually having a conversation. Uh, we mentioned Mexico recently, and you referred to it as a near failed state, which is interesting because I think it was about a day later that Brett Stevens, a columnist for the New York Times. Uh, referred to Mexico as a, a failed state and called for a surge kind of akin to uh, the, the U.S. military surge in Iraq. Um, and this was all after, I think it was nine Americans were murdered by cartels in Mexico. I know you're, uh, uh, you, you deal a lot in your you know, professional life with uh, Mexico, so you have some familiarity with what's happening there. Tell us a little bit about uh, the current situation in Mexico, and I guess maybe the outlook for Mexico. Well, uh, using a Tom Clancy, a Tom Clancy quote, back to our, our Jack Ryan theme at, at the beginning of the conversation, Tom Clancy said that the difference between fiction and reality is that fiction has to make sense. So the situation in Mexico is is something that is is makes no sense. It recently we had we've seen two very concerning uh, episodes of of uh, lawlessness to a point that is is makes no sense it's extremely surprising for for us the uninformed you know normal normal civilian that we don't have any access to any special intelligence information um, the first one was an operation by the Mexican government or Mexican forces to capture the son of uh, famously known El Chapo so this, 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 the son of El Chapo was captured in a, in a neighborhood, uh, in, a, in a city in Mexico called Culiacán. Um, 
And then after he was captured, the reinforcement that he was able to call overwhelmed the Mexican government. So suddenly the Mexican forces were surrounded in a, I guess, backwards hostage situation where the Mexican forces had captured this kingpin uh, drug dealer and they were surrounded. And they were not only surrounded, the, 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 the cartels took over the control of the city. They controlled the access, the, all the military, all, all the access, the road access to the city, started burning trucks, took over the city. They have military personnel, you know, armed personnel. If you see the pictures, these are, uh, you know, the only lacking uh, of these troops, the cartel, you know, armed personnel or fox, whatever we want to call them. The only thing missing was the uniform because they, they, they had... They have the tactical vests. They have long guns, you know, AK-47 or AR-16 AR looking type of long rifles, like the ones used by military personnel, even helmets. They were even wearing ballistic helmets. Uh, they had armored tactical vehicles. You know, the tacticals we see in the movies and we see from ISIS. Uh, well, these guys had the newer models with uh, something that looked like a turtle looking panels that would be homemade armor vehicles uh, and and the big browning, you know, the M2 guns in the turrets. So so that was extremely surprising and, and concerning back to the failed state. Uh, and then what happened last week with, you know, a murder of women and children that were just driving around the road. And these women or children happened to be part of a double, double Mexican U.S., uh, citizenship that were they were part of a religious group that makes has been there for hundred you know hundred plus years in Mexico and they traveled back and forth and they were just killed with uh, with uh, you know a level of barbarian barbarism that is that is just akin to ISIS so so yes those are the two recent events in Mexico it, it appears that there are parts of the territory of the Mexican state that the government just has not enough either don't control or don't want to control. That's a different story. Uh, but definitely the cartels are extremely powerful organizations that show military-like power uh, in, a, in a very scary way. So, so let me ask you this. What, from, a, from a, an American perspective, what, you know, what should the American public make of the situation in both Venezuela and Mexico? Why, other than just sort of a general humanitarian perspective, what should Americans be thinking about these countries and what, what, why would they have interest in what's happening there? Well, number one, don't go there. <laughs> you could argue the Venezuela and Mexican realities are tied. The, the common denominator there is, is drugs, drug dealing. Uh, both uh, the Venezuelan government uh, or the Venezuelan regime higher officers are, are accused and are actually indicted uh, for relationships and drug trafficking. There are actually direct family members of Nicolás Maduro serving term in New York, his uh, nephews, for conspiring to bring 800 kilos of cocaine into the U.S. Um, and then if you connect that to, to the Mexican uh, drug problem that you know, that, that's, that's, that's a concerning issue. So other than not going there, I think the other long-term for, for us as American public is concern, and this, is a, this may be a very long-term concern, but I think our approach, our social approach to drugs 
is is creating is is a problem for for these countries in the sense that without the US market the the Mexican drug lords wouldn't have customers and wouldn't have the millions of dollars they have so am i saying we need to stop having fun yes we need to find other ways of having fun people other than just you know find find something else uh that would be the main concern short term political i don't know what else we can do i think i think the current administration did the responsible thing, which is give him a call and say, hey, neighbor, do you need some military power? The current president of Mexico has a has a strategy I still don't understand of, uh, you know, he, he calls it hogs instead of bullets. I don't know if, if he's doing it on purpose or it's a strategy we're not able to see right now and it'll be it'll work long term. I don't know if he's part of, if he's, the Mexican government decided to surrender to these to this fellows or... I don't know if he's part of the problem. I, I seriously don't know. But the, 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 the approach is being like extremely soft, almost comical. Um, to we, we're not going to go create a massacre because uh, of, of, that is not the problem like the previous administrations in Mexico have been doing. Well, l- let me ask you this. The situation that comes to mind for me here is with Colombia, where uh, decades ago and years ago, you had a similar sort of problem with drug cartels, even to the point where you had a group, I guess the FARC, I believe the name, where they were sort of, they, they were sort of kind of like a, a, a country. They had territory and some sort of wacky left-wing ideology, but it was also they were using drugs as a, as a way to fund themselves. And the U.S., as part of a as part of the effort to deal with this and stamp down on this, uh, there was a concerted effort. I think it was called the Plan Colombia uh, to assist Correct. the Colombia government and try and and that yeah. seems to have been broadly successful. It's the, that's my out, outsider's perspective on it. But so, do you think that something like that could work? in Mexico as well? Uh, or are the situations just kind of different enough that might be want to be a little bit wary, at least for right now, in, in looking at that as the model? No, that's a great question. The, 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 the Plan Colombia is exactly as you described, was mili- basically military and training help to the Colombian uh, armed forces to fight this insurgent Mark, label Marxist insurgents that were really providing security and protection to drug to the big you know cartels in Colombia. So the same way, like when you 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 hire a pest control to come get your cockroach outside your house, and all the cockroach go to a neighbor's house. That's what happened. So so basically, the the, the big drug business moved from Colombia to Mexico, and and that is a problem. That is one of the key problems right now. Now, would a Plan Colombia-like or a Plan Mexico would, would be the way to go? Uh, probably yes. You you need some firepower. You need you need the Black Hawks, and you need the you need the well. Now now it's not Black Hawks. Now we have like sophisticated drones. You need some military power to regain security control of the territories that that these gangs control. That's for sure. But in addition to that, I think if if you want my my very personal opinion on the difference between Mexico and Colombia. I think Colombian, believe it or not, Colombian 
rule of law and, and legal institutions are way stronger than Mexican institutions. Colombia had always, Colombia had problems with their territory that they didn't control, but Colombia had always had very strong judiciary, very strong, very strong separation of powers. Colombian Colombian law schools, in my opinion, are, are the best uh, in, in that part of South America. So, so kudos to Colombian uh, rule of law. Mexico, my perception, and I don't, I don't mean to offend any, any of my Mexican friends, whom I, I, I love Mexico, I have the greatest time, they're lovely people, they're extremely rich culture and history. However, their, their institutions, the rule of law institutions are, are weaker in my perception. As a Venezuelan with the mess that Venezuela is, I, 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 can, I can talk about that without, without that fear of offending sensibilities. So if you ask off the record a Mexican lawyer that could a president call the judiciary and ask for us a favorable sentence, they will tell you absolutely yes. Oh, great. That is good for business planning. You know how, how your, your lobby and your prediction, legitimate business predictions you should take. But if you, if you move, if you translate that to the strong and how much of a police, sophisticated police force you would need to deal with gangs, uh, then that is a big weakness because military, the military is trained to destroy the enemy. If you, if you, the science of being military is I need to destroy, neutralize, and kill the enemy. Uh, sometimes you don't need that. Sometimes you need police, sophisticated police that would investigate, capture, and detain criminals without blowing an entire city up, you know, into pieces. So that is the challenge is, is both having sophisticated, strong police actions that at the same time don't, don't kill half of a town if they need to capture, you know, a, a gang that is hiding behind, behind civilians. Uh, and at the same time, yes, absolutely, applying Colombia-type firepower, you need that uh, to start. Uh, and then, the, again, the, the drugs market, then how do, okay, you, you kill, you, you remove the current drug cartels and they, you throw them all in jail or, or neutralize them. Uh, but then if you still have a market and an appetite for drugs, somebody else is going to do it. That just Somebody else is going to come up with the business. So I don't know what's the answer to that. That's a high policy. I have no idea how to deal with, do we legalize all drugs? I don't know. But that's, that's another long-term issue uh, in addition to, to just you know, having sophisticated bombs and killing all the bad guys. Well, Sudan, thank you so much for joining us and get back to work. <laughs> thank you so much for having me.